Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, last week, uh, former Detective Inspector Pat Murray launched his book, The Making of a Detective, in Drogheda. He's in studio with us uh, this week uh, to tell us a, a little bit about his career of 33 years as a, a member of Angarda Siakana. In the book, he, he tells stories about quite a, a number of people who would be very well known, or at least their names would be very well known to anybody living in this part of the world. Irene White, Adrian Donoghue, Tony Golden, Rachel O'Reilly or Rachel Callaly, uh, who was murdered by her husband Joe, Mary Goff, Niall Dore, Jacqueline McDonough and Wayne Mc. Quillen, and of course, uh, the story of Kira Breen is told extensively in Pat Murray's book, The Making of a Detective. Uh, as I say, he's here with me this morning. Good morning, and thank you for coming into us. Good morning, Michael. Uh, nice to have you with us here in the studio this morning. Uh, you're looking back on a very long and interesting, if not sometimes dangerous career. Uh, 33 years as a member of Angarda Shia Khanna. Uh, you became a guard when you were. 24, I think. 24 in 1985, uh, But yes. you, you, you first applied when you were 17. Yes. Uh, but you wanted to be a guard, it's probably true to say, at a much younger age, uh, when you were a young boy running around in Navin. Yes, indeed. Uh, I tell the story when I was about 8 to 10 years of age. My mother sent me for the, to the shop for some messages. I uh, encountered a guard at the shop and uh, I was struck by his... Uh, demeanour and uh, his uniform and mm. he actually turned around to me and said hello young man how are you and I just sort of with a little bit of a shock but when I got home I told my mother I met a guard and she of course told me well guards are good people and they uh, lock up bad people and they keep the good people safe and mm. all that the usual so uh, we had a, a family friend who was a guard who used to call to us and he'd call in uniform and uh, I was always enthralled. He'd let me play with the handcuffs or the baton, or mm. he'd be showing me how to put someone in a in an arm lock and that yeah. type of stuff. So I was sort of bitten from a an early stage about guards and what they stood for. And was it policing or was it on guard of Shiakana? I mean, did you watch Starsky and Hutch and Hawaii Five O and all that sort of thing? Yeah, well, I have to admit. Uh, well, I have to admit, I'm a, a Colombo fan myself, <laughs> <laughs> and Endeavour, uh, yeah, 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 like Mars. Mm. So they're uh, the ones I would watch like you know but uh, uh, I always wanted to be a guard and uh, went when I was 17 to the local guard station to get an application form and I remember the sergeant there a big strong man 
uh, he grabbed me by the shoulders and shook me, mm-hmm. rattled me, and he says, you want some meat on you first before you join up, he said. And number two, you're only 17, you have to be 18. Mm. So he sent me on my way. And, I and said, you took eight years to fatten up. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I'm fairly fat now, but now and ever. Oh, I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I uh, uh, worked in the private sector for uh, seven mm. years before I joined the guards. Mm. I, uh, and uh, one of the jobs that I did was a packaging designer for Union Camp, who were in Ashburn at the time, and I worked there as a designer. Mm. And I always felt uh, that the job I was doing there, I had to use my brain to come up and solve uh, packaging problems for companies mm. that had automated machines and that. So I, I uh, was all the time thinking of how to solve problems. Right. And when I went into the guards, I still had that mindset with me. Mm. And I think that really uh, came across in my uh, investigations where I didn't stop at just ticking the boxes. Mm. I went that bit further and looked for uh, expert opinions in certain fields and mm. we, we it's covered quite extensively mm-hmm. there in the making of a detective uh, where I used external experts to uh, prove uh, circumstances mm. and that. And, and you had a, a methodical uh, approach oh, yeah, to yeah. investigating any crime uh, and there were certain steps that you took as a matter of course. Yes. Uh, but before becoming a, a detective, uh, you came out of Temple Moore as a, a 24-year-old, a, a young rookie, and uh, you had to get to the stage uh, where you had uh, the experience uh, as well as the skills to tackle some of the big crimes that I mentioned uh, uh, at the start. Uh, and yes. the learning started more or less straight away. Uh, and uh, there was a, a sense that I got from uh, the book uh, about... Uh, how you were very much out of your skin having to police uh, uh, a corpse uh, and the feeling uh, of having to provide security in that situation. Yes, uh, I cover in the book uh, respect of my first encounters with dead bodies and how Mm. I reacted to them. The first post-mortem, I couldn't stomach it and I got sick. Uh, It was as simple as that. Mm. Uh, Then I um, had to spend a night in the morgue with a dead body preserving it, a body chap who had been shot in the head and I covered that and how uh, that night went for me. But unfortunately you you do, it's not that you become complacent but it's Mm. part of a detective's job to face dead bodies and to deal with them and you get used to it I suppose mm. to a certain degree uh, but you don't lose any respect for the for the, the deceased and mm. I cover that in the book where you know at the scene of a murder it's a, it's a lonely silence it's 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 uh, there's a sadness and a, and a and you but you have to sort of uh, engross yourself in what you see and what you what's there like you mm. know to be able to progress your thinking on it. Uh, uh, and that learning Learning began in 1985 when you graduated. That's a long time ago. There's a lot of people listening to us this morning who weren't born in 1985. Uh, There were other things that weren't in this world in 1985. We didn't have the internet. Uh, We didn't have mobile phones, let alone smartphones. Uh, And technology has advanced at a rapid rate. And with that, policing methods has had to follow and catch up. Absolutely. Like, you know, the the uh, if you take, let's say, the Joe Riley case, uh, it was the first time that uh, we in, uh, looked at cell site analysis. And as that it was, was to do with the mobile phones. To do with the mobile mm. phones. And we were able to discover that uh, Joe uh, had made a number of calls and texts on his phones, which 
was able to plot his uh, uh, and, and knock his alibi out of the park where he had said he had been in Broadstone in, in, in Dublin uh, all that morning but we were able to see from the phone analysis that he had travelled out to uh, Baldara where his wife was killed and mm. travelled back at the time uh, he, the murder occurred. So, And that, that he had called his lover yes. uh, in the interim uh, despite having told you yes. at the scene of the crime that yes. neither he nor Rachel had ever had an affair. That yeah. uh, immediately yeah. raised uh, alarm bells in your head. That's correct. Uh, the first time I met Joe, I was outside the uh, house. Uh, it was unusual because he was standing on his own. I introduced myself. I sympathised with him. I told him that uh, we would be doing our best. And I did specifically say to him, like, don't talk to the newspapers at this stage. Let, let us do our business. Like, And uh, it was strange because he was just standing there on his own mm. and his the Callaly family were all embraced and in the early stages of grief down the road a bit. And I would have expected him to be down in the middle of them but he wasn't, and I just thought that a little strange. Like, mm. But that night, uh, I interviewed him at Lent in his mother's house uh, with two other uh, Gardaí, and um, the thing that pricked my ears was that the uh, first question I asked, I said, who would have killed Rachel, or had she any enemies? Or, And he said, absolutely, there's nobody. He couldn't think of anybody. And I said, maybe she was having an affair, and it was a disgruntled wife that maybe had this done. And he said, uh, neither of us are having affairs. And uh, I thought that strange because I didn't ask about him, but mm. he put himself under that umbrella. And that sort of got me thinking a bit. So I said, there has to be something here. So I asked him a second time during the course of the conversation, and he denied it. So before we left, I looked straight into his eyes and I said, Joe, are you having an affair? And uh, he sort of just said, well, I did have an affair, but it's over now. And I don't want my family to know about it. And that was it. I asked him who it was, and he said it was this girl, Nikki Pelly. And I said, fine. Uh, and I said, when was the last time you spoke to her? And he says, well, today at 12 o'clock, uh, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I says, grand. And uh, we went and made our inquiries read Nikki Pelly, and she admitted that she had an affair with Joe, and she was playing it down. And as the investigation progressed... Uh, she came on side on the, on the basis that she told us that she, she did have a full affair with Joe she was in love with him and she wanted to move on with him so this was a totally uh, not in keeping with what Joe was telling us mm. and we asked her uh, like you know why did you uh, you know play it down and she said well Joe says uh, to play it down because it might be seen, it might look like as if it was a motive mm. so those type of things sort of get you interested like you know that Everybody was interested in that yeah. case. It was a very long-running investigation uh, right. and uh, it quite often made front-page news. Uh, yes. uh, and uh, at one stage, uh, you were getting phone calls when you were away on holidays in Spain. Yeah, well, I was on another murder investigation in Spain at the time and uh, we were told that uh, Joe was going on the Late Late Show with Rose Callaly and uh, we thought this very strange because uh, I had no knowledge of this and I was dealing with the Callaly family and that. And, and you'd asked them not to yeah, speak to, to the media. media yeah. Yeah, and uh, wh- when the team were relating back over the phone as the uh, Pat Kenny was interviewing uh, Rose and, and Joe, and it seemed to be bizarre, like what was being 
relayed back to us that Rose was very uncomfortable with Joe there and he was blathering on, not making much sense. Mm. So when I did come home, I looked at the footage and I was, like everyone else, I said, God, this is out of sync with what he's supposed to be there to do. And it was quite evident that Rose was keeping her distance from him. She nearly wanted to move the seat away from him. Um, And I think a lot of people on that night said, look, there's something not right with this guy. And they watched with intent over the following period of time until he was convicted, you know. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, so, like, obviously we, we were looking for, uh, we had a, we had a number of, we had, the, let's say, this cell site analysis at that stage in a mm. preliminary format, which obviously led to our suspicion that he was the person who committed mm. the murder. Uh, and that uh, involved uh, bringing experts from, from overseas. From France, yes, mm-hmm. indeed. And uh, they were able to draw up a chart and we presented this mm. chart at the trial uh, which showed the movements of Joe that morning, mm-hmm. which was very, very, you know, it was very methodically done and it mm. showed the pattern of his movements that morning. And it was the was first totally time that yeah. evidence of that sort yes, was, was used. Was used yeah. uh, and you've been to the forefront uh, of this type of evidence uh, that relies on technology in the Mary Goff investigation. It yes, was, that was internet the fir- searching. searching. Yes, mm-hmm. and that was the first time uh, that we sort of were introduced to the internet mm. and we could see where Colin had uh, uh, searched sites in respect of uh, asphyxiation and how to render mm. someone unconscious and like you know uh, Mary was uh, uh, for your listeners that might know the, the, the circumstances uh, Mary and Colin were in the house and Colin said she fell down the stairs and uh, uh, it transpired from the postmortem that she had been strangled by way of ligature even though there was no ligature mark but we were able to show that he had researched uh, um, uh, Henry Lewis Wallace who was a guy convicted of nine murders of mm. women and he used towels and various ligatures that didn't leave a mark and uh, we were able to show that he followed that type of, of uh, modus operandi in killing his wife. Uh, After reading about it on After, the internet. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you'd have strong feelings about how people like uh, Colin and Joe Riley should be dealt with uh, by the judicial system and that a, a premeditated murder mm. should, in effect, result in a life for a life. That if you take somebody's life intentionally, that you should spend life in prison. Yes, I cover it in the book, uh, my own views, that uh, if you premeditate a murder and you're caught and convicted, you should remain in prison for the rest of your life. If you have, uh, like I call it, murder in the second Mm. degree, then that uh, if you were a participant in some way keeping a sketch but didn't actually commit the murder, you should, and you're caught, you should do at least 25 years without uh, parole, uh, being able to apply for parole, and then murder in the third degree, which would cover manslaughter, um, that you at least serve a minimum of 10 years before you uh, could apply for parole. But uh, the circumstances, and I explain in the book about involuntary and voluntary manslaughter, and like not all cases are... Um, just straightforward. Uh, I do cover in the chapter, one chapter on assaults where people may get one punch uh, and die uh, several days later and that punch was the cause of that death. Uh, I have it where a guy in Drogheda here was assaulted and he died several days later and we believed it was a result of the assault but uh, we were able to state pathologist was able to prove beyond doubt that uh, it was a natural died of natural causes in the end of the day so mm. uh, 
you know, so it's it's an interesting as, an interesting mm. aspect of that chapter of the book. Um, uh, and disappointing, uh, I gather, uh, when justice is not seen to be served. If, if people feel that a, a, a life has been taken and that somebody hasn't been yes. made responsible for yes. that, and I think to some degree that might be the case with Niall Dorr's family, uh, because whilst somebody was convicted, uh, yeah. they died shortly afterwards in prison. Yeah. Uh, and you speak about some of the disappointments you've had over your career, and yeah. I, I think the biggest disappointment uh, you say in the book uh, was the investigation into the disappearance of Kira Bree. Yes, poor Kira went missing in 1987. She got out the window of her house to meet somebody and she never came back. Uh, she's never seen or found. Uh, and we did investigate it and uh, discovered who um, and was able to put someone in the suspect bracket for it. Uh, he was arrested and questioned. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, we had to release him without any charge. Um, we did, through the course of the investigation, discovered that uh, we believe she was buried in Balmer's Bog in, in Dundalk. And I'm quite um, of the view that she's still there. Um, we obviously so it was a thorough search. It was a, it was a thorough yeah, search yeah, of yeah. it's 17 acres the, the mm. bog, and uh, uh, we had to sort of reasonably assume where she was, given what information we had. And I was hoping that we would find her in that area. But when we started the excavation, we discovered that 500 ton of rubble had been dumped in the area where we had the, an interest. Uh, and um, the anthropologist uh, told us that look at your you're really uh, up against it here because any bones will be crushed and mm. there'd be powder now like so you probably are not going to find anything but we still went ahead with the search and unfortunately we didn't find anything but we were so close to solving that crime that mm. if we had come across any part of Kira Breen uh, discovered in the bog, I think we would have had someone charged. So okay. that's how close we were. But so far, as well, like when you know, all I wanted to do really was bring home Kira to Bernadette. That was it. And you can think of the pain that lady suffered over the years, like her only daughter, mm. the only child that she had, and she was her life, and then taken away in such circumstances. Um, it's horrendous, like, you know, it yeah. really is horrendous. Uh, there's no doubt Bernadette died broken-hearted. Broken-hearted, no Absolutely, doubt, yeah. 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 Okay, uh, well, you've retired now, uh, you yeah. retired last year, uh, and uh, you reflect on your 33 years as a member of Angarda Siakana in uh, the making of uh, a detention. I think you'll always have the guards in your blood. Uh, would that be right to say? Well, I have my own private mm. investigation business now, and I mm. still have that tra- train of thought to get to the truth of matters. Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. I know they're probably mm. just false claims or exaggerated claims, or whatever. They're not murders, but mm. still, I have that. Uh, like to think it out, you know. Mm. But when you read stories uh, in the papers this morning, let's say, uh, about uh, allegations of corruption amongst members of the force uh, to do with road traffic accidents or offences and GAA members, uh, does that jar with you? Because I I know uh, you write in the book uh, about the Morris McCabe scandal uh, and uh, the morale of the force, I suppose, as a result. Yeah, well, what I say in the book is that, like, I'm not into Garda bashing, but uh, we've all had our uh, belly full of uh, what went on with poor Morris McCabe and that, you know, and uh, it's sort of... um, But, like, what I do reflect on as well in the book is that, like, the massive work that's done by Garda Shia and respect of what we have to do 
in uh, murder investigations where, you know, we have to go to the end of the air to, to, to solve it. Mm. And I have to uh, acknowledge the members of the detective branch in Dundalk, Drogheda and RD who were superb men and women, really top class. Mm. And, and uh, you, you have very high praise for the chief superintendent in the book as well. I have mm. indeed. Uh, Christy Mangan, the chief superintendent uh, in Drogheda, has been a breath of fresh air to policing uh, in Loud. Mm. And he is a good... Uh, wide uh, um, uh, understanding of all aspects mm. of policing and he has shown that. And, and he has his work cut out for him as we'll be hearing cut, in a few yeah, minutes. But, yeah. mm-hmm. but he is a good mm. man, a good one. He's, a, he's really a, 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 um, someone that mm. can, can lead and bring people along with him mm. and not afraid to make decisions. Um, okay, well, look, thanks uh, for coming in to us. Uh, to tell us a, a little bit about the making of a detective, your book, Pat Murray, about your career, but it's also a reflection of uh, the incidents uh, that we've lived through in this community uh, that uh, you've uh, been working on uh, and helping to protect the community over that 33 years that you I, served as I a member. So. Yeah. I guess so, okay. yes, Michael, yes. All right, well, look, thank you for joining us here on the programme this morning. That's uh, retired uh, Detective Inspector Pat Murray. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.